everyone, and welcome back to another episode of CQP Moments. As always, I am your host, the Cuban Queen Pen. Do you guys have a love affair with food? Or when did you find out that your passion was what you really wanted to do? Or are you still trying to figure out how to follow those passions? Well, my next guest, David, talks about it all. And we find out about what he's going through with Food Americana. So, guys, let's take a moment out and I'll be right back with David. So guys, like I was saying, I am here with author David Page. And if you don't understand right now why I am sitting here seriously fangirling out, I truly, truly am. This man speaks my other language, food. You guys know I've done stuff about fried chicken. I've done stuff about pizza. Well, let's talk this man loves the Food Network as much as I do. So, David, would you please introduce yourself to my listeners? Hi, my name is David Page. I created Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dimes, and I have a new book out called Food Americana. And Queen, I am glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming. Okay, yeah, he guys, he did say Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. I, I definitely left that out on purpose so (laughs) so okay question where did your love with food start well I've always enjoyed eating but it really got serious when I moved to Europe as a producer for NBC News in the 80s and I covered Europe Africa and the Middle East and began eating and enjoying and exploring national cuisines of various countries and within them, of course, regional and and even local cuisines. And I grew it from there. When I got back to the United States, I pursued my interest in food along the same lines. I was well aware at that point of the glories of regional cooking, the glories of food made well, and it's just moved along from there. So, okay, you're in agreement with me then that all chicken nuggets are not created equal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, oh, yeah. I, I just had, I, I had to put that out there because I've been telling people this and people don't believe me. So guys, you're hearing it from a professional. All chicken nuggets are not created equal. Okay. <laughs> But all right, so you're traveling for NBC, and how do you get from NBC to the Food Network? Well, after NBC, I actually worked at ABC um, when I was back in the States, and at one point, I decided that I wanted to go off on my own and create my own programming, which sounds great, but really means I voluntarily became unemployed. When I did, I was looking around for ways to make a few bucks. And I called Al Roker, who worked for me when I ran the Weekend Today show. He was 
the weatherman on the weekend show before he went on the main show. And I said, Al, you got a production company, you got anything I could do for you? And he said, I do, in fact. And he subcontracted a couple of hours to me that he was doing for the Food Network, uh, one of them being a history of diners. After I had done those, I decided to pursue the Food Network on my own and called them up and picked some stuff and they said no. And then I called up and picked some stuff and they said no. And this went on for quite a while until I was on the phone with a development executive who was kindly listening to yet another unsuccessful pitch when she spoke up and said, don't you have anything else about diners? And I said, oh, absolutely. I've been developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. And she said it was a Thursday or Friday late in the day. And she said, we have a development meeting on Tuesday. Get me something on Monday. Now, the problem was I was not developing something called Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. I had just pulled the name out of thin air at that instant. But I spent the weekend doing my research. I sent them a pitch on Monday. And they shortly thereafter, they picked up a special, uh, a one hour special, because they were looking for something to keep Guy Fieri's face in front of the public. He had just won their first Food Network star competition. They had asked a couple of big time production companies to propose a primetime vehicle for him. And in the interim, they figured, okay, we'll, we'll do this special with him. It'll keep him out there. What happened, however, was that when the big time production companies came back with their pitches, the Food Network didn't like them. And with nothing to do with Guy at that point in time, they said, what the heck, let's try this diners thing. So they picked up a very short first season. And after the first couple of episodes did well, they kind of tamped down my enthusiasm or tried to by telling me, look, this is all fine and good, but we just don't think there's enough places in America for you to keep this show on the air more than a couple of seasons, maybe three. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. And I did the first 11 seasons. I think they're now up to season 30 something. So to quote William Goldman, the noted Hollywood screenwriter in his book, one of his books, Goldman's theory of entertainment is quote, nobody knows anything close quote. I, I definitely understand it. And I re remember when this all started out because it was kind of like we knew, you know, the ne next Food Network star, but we didn't know, you know, diners, drive-ins, and dives. So, okay, since I have the expert here, can you explain the difference between a diner, a drive-in, and a dive? Well, technically speaking, Diners are self-contained, prefabricated units where the cooking is done in front of you and where they have a counter and perhaps booths and where the menu is pretty basic homemade stuff. Now, over the years, the definition of diner has expanded quite generously to include, and probably mostly, buildings purpose built to be diners, things that in California might be referred to as coffee shops, but the essence is still good, solid, homemade food. Okay. drive-in is, as the name says, you stay in your car. A dive is a place that to be on that show had to make great food, but where you would feel pretty comfortable 
drunk at 3 a.m. Ah, okay. So you're getting it here, guys. You are hearing the difference. So you know that place where that makes the food that you'd probably never eat if you weren't drunk? That's a dive. What's interesting (laughs) is it, it now encompasses, obviously, interesting characters making homemade food. But when we started, I was very concerned to try to get at least one of those in every show because when you go to so many places in search of food and people, do they all qualify as diners, drive-ins, or diets? Probably not. After the first couple of seasons, it really didn't matter. Right. But at first, you definitely had to do your due diligence. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. So you go from, you know, diners, drive-ins, and dives, and you start, what, traveling the world again? No, after, after diners, I moved on to a series about craft beer. Uh, beer? beer geeks. Yeah. No, okay, we, wait, 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 wait. I'm so confused. Okay, we go from food to beer. What, what, what brought on that transition? <laughs> well, what brought on the transition was that uh, a major network, Discovery, put out a request for proposals for a beer show. And I shot a pilot. And they turned it down in favor of something else that was much more gimmicky, which didn't last very long. But I loved the idea and I loved the talent. And I said, what the hell, let's risk my daughter's college education and try to syndicate this thing. So initially we syndicated it. It was called Beer Geeks. And then we found a home on a streaming platform called Aura.TV, which had been set up by the Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim as the new home for Larry King when he left CNN. And we continued the series there. We did 26 or 27 episodes. And there was a lot of food involved. The first half of the show, we would visit various breweries and observe them making their beer and help them make their beer. But in the third act, we would go to a restaurant that was cooking with their beer. And in the fourth act, we would have a pairing dinner at that restaurant pairing dishes with beers that go with those dishes. Beer is far more complex as a food element or a dining element than people realize. Wow. Wow. Okay. Before we actually get onto your book, I am going to ask the question that I know more people want to know. How much of this food did you guys actually eat on the show? Uh, Well, we ate some of all of it. I mean, Guy legitimately tasted it, but if you're going to eat food all day on television, you can't do a whole lot of swallowing. Right. That's true. That's true. That's true. Well, I mean, you know, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, when we find out that, you know, our favorite foods on some of the cooking shows are pre-cooked. So it's like, you want to know, well, (laughs) did you actually eat any of it? Did you just show it to us? So so guys, you're hearing there was some. Well, let, and let me, let me go a step beyond that and say that I held this show to the same standards I employed when I was the senior investigator producer of 2020. Every fact had to be verified. Everything had to be true. Uh, if a place after we walked into it didn't meet our standards, we walked back out. Um, when guy says he loves something, he loves it. If he says he likes it, he likes it. 
if he says it's crunchalicious, then it's crunchy. Um, <laughs> it, we also showed every every step of making the food. Nice, nice. Okay, wow. So, listen, there is quality control being done, guys. So, don't worry. If someone says they like it, they actually like it. So, okay, let's move on to your book. I am so excited about this book. Oh my gosh. Let me tell you, when I looked at the book, I was like, why is this man speaking my language? Where has this book been all of my life? Okay. It's been in my head. (laughs) So... David has written this book and it's like a literal how to a food Americana, like all the foods that we love from barbecue to like Tex-Mex tacos, but you're giving us the goods. I, you know, the funny thing was when I looked at your um, your, you know, the page of content. And I was like, oh my gosh, he has a chapter on sushi. That was like my first thing. I was like, if this man has not gone and done vegetable sushi, I don't know if I want to have them. And then when I saw a cucumber roll, I was like, I'm sold. So (laughs) sushi is not about fish. Sushi is about vinegared rice. And, and that's the crazy part. Most people don't get that. Most people don't get that. Like, okay, I, 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 oh my gosh. So before I go off the deep end, cause you guys know that I can fangirl out forever. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this book. So what made you say, okay, you know what? I'm going to sit down and write a book and I'm just going to give a literal how to on the foods that everyone loves. I had been gestating the idea for years. I've always thought I had a book in me and people would always tell me, write about your experiences overseas as a journalist. And I found the recitation of that to be boring and also thought there were people who could better tell that story. But my love of food and the curiosity that, it's, that is required to be a journalist kept mixing this idea around in my head. And I finally said to my wife, I think I'm going to try it. So I sat down, um, outlined a book and kind of naively put together an outline for something that would require an immense amount of research. I could have written a book on hamburgers. I could have written a book on sushi. Instead, I wrote a book on 12 or 13 items, each of which required pretty much the research that I would have had to put in to make a book out of it. So it was kind of jumping into the deep end. The writing, the researching and writing process took two years. The pandemic occurred in the middle of it, which caused me to have to address that issue somewhat. But in the final analysis, I think I've been waiting to do this all my life. I've been a journalist 50 years. But you know what? I I will have to say this. One of the great things that I find about this book is this is kind of the answer for 
mid pandemic eating. I, I don't know how to explain it. In other words, you know how everybody's like, well, I don't know what to cook. I don't know what to do. This is kind of like really the answer for mid-pandemic eating. I mean- well, We're all so desperate to get together over meals. Right, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things of, it's so far explained that, you know, you can say to your friend, well, let's, let's do all do the same dish over Zoom. Like, you know, that's a great idea. <laughs> I recommend starting with chicken wings. It's a lovely, simple, delightful way to, to jump into it. And it's very, very hard to screw them up. So, so, so do we start with the chapter on wings and things, or do we start with the Renaissance of fried chicken? I mean, you're talking your, your about choice. all of this. Your choice. <laughs> yeah. the, the Renaissance of fried chicken, it's hilarious to some extent that it's best represented by the chicken sandwich wars of 2019 and 2020. You know, that is the craziest thing I have. And you know, the okay, guys, I know you have been wanting me to get in on this chicken sandwich war. I just can't bring myself to eat a Popeye's chicken sandwich. I'm sorry. I love you guys, but I really can't. Um. <laughs> well, whether, whether you love their sandwich or not, you've got to tip your hat in their direction for marketing uh, creativity. Oh, when yeah. They, when, when they introduced their sandwich and um, what a time for my brain to fail me, Chick-fil-A. When they introduced their sandwich and Chick-fil-A put up a snarky tweet uh, or even not so snarky. They just put up a tweet uh, reminding people that theirs was the original chicken sandwich. The folks at Popeye's responded with the following tweet. Y'all good? Question mark. And it was that extremely snarky tweet that really launched the war. And in the book, I follow the Popeye's executive who made that decision uh, minute by minute through what happened that day until he faithfully said, go with it. And a war exploded, which was good, by the way, not just for Popeye's, it was also good for Chick-fil-A and anyone else who served a chicken sandwich or who soon jumped on the bandwagon to serve a chicken sandwich. Right. I, I mean, think about it this year, this way. Two years later and McDonald's is like, we're going to revamp the chicken sandwich. So it's almost like, you know how they say, you know, all press isn't bad press. And it's just like, oh my gosh. Who thought that one, like, you know, sarcastic tweet would have sparked a war and we're still talking about chicken sandwiches like two years later. Well, you know, Americans eat more chicken than beef. We crossed that line several years ago. Really? Whereas, I, I mean, yes. is, is that really, really true? It is really, 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 really true. I uh, got the information from probably the leading industry analyst in the food world, David Portolatin. Uh, we actually crossed that line several years ago, and he says we're never going back. But he also points out that for all the talk of health, we tend to eat our chicken fried. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you, you know, the crazy part is that it's almost like 
you want to, but it's, it's, it's almost like it calls you. And again, I have to say this, and I know David, you agree with me. All fried chicken is not created equal either. Oh God, no. All fried chicken is not created equal. I have to say that for the people in the back, like, oh my gosh, no, not no. So it's just, I don't know what it is. It's, It's one of those things of most of the time when you think of chicken, you're thinking of a piece of fried chicken, whether it's leg, breast, wing, thigh, something, you're thinking fried chicken. You know, it's interesting. However, I have my chicken. I, I finally gave in after years of skinless breasts because I try to watch my weight. Mostly I watch it go up. I, I finally <laughs> gave in to taste. And now I'm a dark meat guy. Really? Yeah, it's just bad. I mean, look, the, the reality is fat is flavor and there's more fat in dark meat. There is more fat in dark meat. There is more fat in dark meat. But I have to say, I am definitely a west a, a breast and wing girl. Well, there you go. I am definitely a breast and wing girl. Yeah, well, but... wing, wing, wings are at uh, at a premium because Americans are eating more and more of them and chickens only have two of them. I tell you, I tell you, you know, the funny thing, I think in my house, the fam clan and I, will fight over a chicken wing now every other piece of the chicken is like up fair game lay like you know you know they know i like the breast it's like okay and then you know the kids are with the whole like drumstick thing because they're drumstick anti-thigh but i I don't know how to explain that (laughs) some things are just what they are but it's like but when it comes to wings it's like everybody's like i want that so yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Um, now we, uh, it's personal taste, obviously, but there's been such a, such an uptick in wing consumption that that's why you have wing purveyors inventing boneless wings, which means it's not a wing at all. It's it's a glorified chicken nugget. Yeah, it's other, other meat from the chicken kind of smushed together. And uh okay if you want that you can have it I'm, I'm not going there <laughs> I know I know I know so okay we can't talk wings without talking buffalo and we can't talk buffalo without talking barbecue and man do you talk barbecue in this book I mean you're breaking barbecue up into region well of course because it is barbecue is as regional a food as exists in America first of all in what the protein is pork, beef, goat, lamb. Uh, Secondly, in what the flavoring is from tangy in the Carolinas to sweet in Kansas City to pretty much none in Central Texas. I was at Louis Miller's Barbecue in Taylor, Texas, which is uh, one of America's great treats. And watched them make the barbecue, the, the brisket there with nothing but salt and pepper. And you can have some thin sauce on the side if you want it, but it's certainly not recommended. So barbecue is extremely regional in its character. And in fact, I don't know if this is good or bad, but the latest trend in barbecue is to nationalize it in such a way that 
you can now get Memphis barbecue in Texas and Texas brisket in North Carolina and some of all of it at a place called Smoke in Chicago. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that people are getting to experience other kinds of barbecue, but part of me thinks it's a shame you should need to go there to get it. Right. But I think, you know, I, I have to blame this. And normally I don't brand name. I don't drop names, but I blame Heinz for this. Oh, come on. <laughs> the was... poor Heinz family. <laughs> Although actually what's interesting about that is that it was the invention and popularity of Heinz ketchup that created red barbecue sauce in the first place. Uh, historically, that is accurate. After Heinz ketchup, I, I, I don't have the book open in front of me or my notes, but I believe it was at an exhibition in the 1890s or maybe 1904. Once Heinz ketchup came on the scene, it dramatically changed the barbecue world. Yeah, well, here's the thing. And as you know, David, I am the coupon queen event. And I've been in a lot of couponing groups. And when I first started out, I remember a few years ago, getting into these groups and one of the biggest people don't understand the biggest hauls you can get usually are condiments because you can get them cheaper next to nothing and i remember one woman saying hey guys we got the we did the heinz haul you know i have about 150 bottles of ketchup in my in my stockpile here are some recipes on what to do with all of this ketchup oh my god and so it's like, you know, you get it. You kind of really get it. Well, hold on. Do you do ketchup on eggs? No, I don't do ketchup on eggs. Yeah, I do. And it's just the world is divided into ketchup or no ketchup on eggs. I am a hot sauce on eggs, girl. I'm like seriously sriracha on eggs. Really? Yeah, I love sriracha on oh, eggs. Okay. Nothing wrong with that. Yes, I, I I do love sriracha. I, I love spicy. I don't know. I, and the thing is that for me with that sweet and that spice, it's it's just got to be that. Well, but the key to spicy is that it can't override the taste. You know, exactly. It's, it's exactly. One thing, it's one thing to to have a spice that has a flavor to it and perhaps even enhances other flavors. And then it's something else just to prove you're the toughest guy in the room. Uh, I've, I've never gone for that, though I, I did shoot some TV shows where uh, something called Outrageous Food, where people try. Right. I, I always tell people, if I have to sign a waiver saying that you're not responsible for my death, if I eat something you made, I don't need to eat it. Yeah, well, I'm not going to disagree with that, Queen. I, I have always felt like that. I've always been like, uh, yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> So let's talk more about this. Oh my gosh. Like I said, I'm in love with your book. Now, one of the trends that I am seeing is the whole birria and it's all over Instagram. It's all the rage here in New York city. You can't walk to a taco truck with them asking you, you know, do you want regular tacos or you want birria tacos? Do you want birria nachos? So can you explain to us what this is and how this craze started? Yeah, birria is stewed meat with uh, a sauce that's based on peppers. I first had it in Jalisco in central Mexico 
some years back. And there it's generally made with goat. It migrated to Tijuana where the favored protein became beef. And it was in Tijuana that they first started putting it into tacos. I mean, obviously everything can be put into a taco, but they, they first created a specialty called Bidia Dedes tacos. Right. Tacos. They are generally crisped on the grill and then served with the sauce they were cooked in, which is called consomme. And you take the taco and you dip it in the consomme and you go to heaven. It's just an absolutely remarkable dish. My favorite near where I live is 90 miles away in South Philly. And it's well worth the drive to the truck on the street to get the Bidia tacos. Now, Bidia is a great example of what's happening to not just Mexican food, but many foods as a new round of dishes that were not originally part of or have not been part of the Americanized version of that cuisine are starting to get more popular. Um, Birria de Reis is now getting so popular that I think at some point it's going to be included in the broad cuisine I call Mexican-American. Prior to that, the last dish that I think made it there was mole, which is a wonderful chili-based sauce, often with the inclusion of Mexican chocolate that is served over chicken or turkey and that is extraordinary. But you're seeing an increase in what some people would call authentic. I don't like that word. Um, but in, in the importation of foods to the United States that are exactly as eaten or as close as possible to what's eaten in the country of origin. You're seeing a lot of that in the Chinese world now, where dishes such as dry pot, which is a spicy bowl full of disparate ingredients that can include pork or chicken, but that can also include things Americans are less inclined towards, such as artery and duck blood. And that sort of dish is becoming much more popular in the United States. Firstly, because there are enough Chinese immigrants now, um, business executives and college students especially, that Chinese food can be marketed specifically to the Chinese. Prior to that, it had to be modified to be marketed to Americans. And you're starting to see Americans kind of dipping their toe into that water. There's a restaurant I profile in the book that's in Bloomington, Indiana, Longfei Chinese restaurant. It's across the street from the university. And they have two menus. They have a Chinese American menu and they have a Chinese menu. And the owner says more and more non-Chinese Americans are getting adventurous and trying what's on the Chinese menu. But that, I mean, that's the way to do it. That's the way to, you know, make people find out more. And I think the one thing that most people don't really, the unspoken thing, should I say, is that food is a language and it's the easiest way to kind of get someone to try a culture that they wouldn't normally try. Correct. Absolutely. Food is the gateway to a society. It, it, it tells you so much about a culture, 
what what kinds of foods did they have? How did they gather? Um, it, it, it's what's important to them, what the natural resources are, um, how much reverence for history is there? Right, it's, exactly. It's the best way to get to know another culture I found in my years uh, internationally. And before we go with the craziness, because I, I did hear you talk about this dish that has things that people won't normally eat. As you guys know, I am Afro-Latina and there are different dishes all over the place like morcilla that are made with things that I wouldn't rather name on here, but it is a traditional dish. These are the dishes of home and, you know, the flavors we know, because a lot of people where they're from are farmers and gardeners and it's a lot of agriculture. So it was a lot of not wasting things, but it made for some amazing eating. <laughs> well, not, not wasting things um, for, especially the, the, the foods I call the food of poverty have to be, let me rephrase that necessity required that people creatively come up with ways right. to make these more than edible but enticing and attractive um every culture has for example some sort of stuffed item that includes grain and fat and whatever else can be put together at minimal cost to provide maximum calories before you get yeah. out of the field. Um, it's haggis in Scotland. Uh, there are um, uh, similar dishes from culture to culture. And the, the creativity required to take something basic and turn it into something special means that foods that were once only for the poor end up as centerpieces of regional or national cuisines because they're so damn good you know what it is i tell people all the time it's the love it's it's, mm -hmm. it's the love it's like let's be real about this you can get a cookie anywhere you you can get a cookie just about anywhere you go you can go to the supermarket you can buy a cookie and let's just let's not even talk oreos or anything now let's just talk a basic chocolate chip cookie. You can get a chocolate chip cookie just about anywhere, but there's something about your grandmother's or your mother's chocolate chip cookies that will top everything. It is the love, but if you extend that to home cooking in restaurants, it's the people who care about the food deeply. Those are the folks exactly. I want to eat in exactly so oh my gosh now i do want to ask you and i know we've skipped around in your book okay. but i have a question because your first real chapter was apple pie american pie no now, that's pizza no but here's the thing i did want to ask you about apple pie that's the reason okay. i'm saying that because American pie is pizza. <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you. But I have heard people say that American apple pie is not American. Is that true? I can't answer the question. It's not in the book. Ah, you know, the funny thing, I love this because you are, 
you are being real with it. I love this. So everyone knows I did a an episode on pizza of all the places that I love to eat pizza in New York City. <laughs> all over. Oh, where, where, what's on your list? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. There's a place in the Bronx called Yankees Pizza. And of course, Arthur Avenue has this upside down slice of pizza that makes you go gaga. Yes, it does in the Arthur Avenue market. And then there is this little known pizza shop when you come out of um, the Staten Island Ferry. Oh, I know the one you're talking about. Yes. It's going to kill me because the name won't come to mind. (laughs) So yes, I've done pizza. So, okay. What's so American about pizza? Well, what's so American about pizza is what we did to it. The pizza that the immigrants from Southern Italy wanted to recreate, the pizza they ate at home was made with Italian wheat. Our wheat has a different protein level, the wheat they found when they got to New York. So first of all, and and we used a different kind of oven. So the first thing that happened is the crust was crunchier and chewier than pizza back in Naples. Secondly, we could not, they could not get the mozzarella they were used to because 11 days on a ship wasn't gonna be good for it. So they began using, uh, using American mozzarella. And thirdly, while pizza in Southern Italy was the food of the poor, I mean, there was very little on it. If you were lucky, you could afford a sardine or a piece of lard. What the initial wave of Italian immigrants to the United States discovered to their astonishment was abondanza, the abundance of available food here, where even the poor could afford meat. And over time, that showed itself not just in Italian American cuisine, heaping plates, but in an increase in things that got put on pizza. Additionally, as pizza moved throughout the country, um, necessity being the mother of invention, people would make it with what was available where they were, which is why, for example, St. Louis pizza uses Provel, a processed cheese, not that far off from American. And it's why pizza in uh, different places uses different ingredients. We have about 30 different kinds of pizza in the United States, if you want to break them down by regional definition. In in New Haven, they serve them with clams, uh, which, by the way, is a hell of a pizza. In in Old Forge, Pennsylvania, where Old Forge pizza was invented to feed the coal miners back in the day, that's an oblong pizza made in a pan that is topped with a different kind of processed cheese because that's what was available there. Look, pizza's cheap, it's easy to transport, uh, it happens to be delicious. It ingrained itself into American cuisine um, so deeply that I think uh, I think of pizza as an American food. I think most people do. Oh, it definitely is, it definitely is. So question, what made you say, I'm going to include recipes in this because you could have just made a how to, this is what you do, you know, but what made you say, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to include some of my favorite recipes, some recipes that I think, you know, I love. Well, I'd love to take credit for it, but it was the publisher's suggestion, uh, which I embraced immediately, but I, I hadn't thought of it. And uh, someone at the publishing company said to me, you know, why don't you, why don't you give them a little something that they can try at home? So at the end of each chapter, I have a recipe for the kind of food that was included. Most of them are specifically from establishments that were in the book or are in the book. Uh, and many of the recipes are legendary. For example, the uh, Big Bob Gibson's white barbecue sauce. I did see I was, that. I did see that. I was, almost, I was almost afraid to include it because it's so simple. It's like three ingredients. But the the dish, the, the sauce is, is so legendary in the barbecue world. But I figured, why not? I threw it in there. Um, there's, there's some recipes that are pretty complicated, some that are simple. I, uh, for example, in testing the wings recipe, my wife and I made wings at home. They were fantastic. It's a great recipe. I know. I was like, oh my gosh. And then you've got the, the cucumber rolls. You've got the, you know, the potato taquitos, which for those who don't know, you think that mashed potatoes in a taco are going to be like, uh, let me oh, tell God. you something. Oh my goodness. The first time I tasted a taquito de papa, I was like, oh my goodness, the flavors. Yeah, we have this weird American hang up on not having starch with starch. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the funny thing is we love starches. <laughs> yeah, but like it, it feels, you know, guilty. Red beans and rice. Yeah, well, it's the perfect combination. Um, the, the potato taquitos are fantastic. That, that, that restaurant is great. Well, any restaurant I mentioned, I, I'm vouching for in terms of suggesting you go there. Uh, but the, the taquitos are just terrific. And they, they, of course, at, at that restaurant, El Indio in San Diego, they make their own tortillas, which is obviously a, a, a big deal. Oh yeah, and that's the other thing is you break down things so well, like you're talking about what goes into a masa for a tortillas or, Thank and you. even though guys, we talked about it, we talked about what birria was, but you break down what each and everything is. And I find that to be so awesome because sometimes even cooking at home and you wanna try something different and you're like, well, can I do this? And, and I think that's one of the one of the craziest things. And I think that was one of my reasons for loving the Food Network so much is there's so much breakdown. And, and I think that's, for me, what your book does is it really breaks it down and says, hey, you know what? You actually may have the ingredients at home. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to like flip out, you know? So it, it's, it's, it's so, I love I really, really, when I say I am sitting here fangirling out, I am fangirling out because I'm like, you are definitely speaking my language. That's this so kind of you to say. So awesome. This is so awesome. So, of course, we have to end with dessert. And you end the book with dessert, even though, you know, 
the five-year-old me wants to start this from reverse, you know, and you know what I'm talking about, ice oh, cream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ice cream. <laughs> well, ice cream is having a wonderful moment in the United States right now. Oh, yes, it definitely is. Guys, I mean, and for those of you that don't know, if you get the chance, if it opens back up this summer, guys, please go. The Museum of Ice Cream here in New York City is amazing and in your you know buying your ticket is included an ice cream tasting so yeah oh man i'll be there no I, ice cream what's happening to ice cream is is remarkable in that you can get anything now if you want a cheap pint or gallon of heavily aerated low butter fat vanilla out of the freezer case at the grocer, go ahead. If you want an indulgent, creamy, high butter fat, low air with mix-ins and homemade this and homemade that, you can get that. It's, and, and it's an indulgence that uh, only costs you calories. Ice cream remains relatively cheap, even at the high end. Oh yeah, it really, really does. But it's one of those things of, I think for me, ice cream allows you to be the most creative with foods and flavors. Absolutely. And and it sounds so crazy, guys, but it's so true. You can actually go with the salty sweet. You can mix different fruit. You can mix different chocolates. You know, I mean... They're even, I've even seen now where guys, they're experimenting with different kinds of liquors and wines and ice creams. Like there are so many different things that you can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, gone are the days of just having a regular Sunday and a regular banana split. It's just like, go for it. (laughs) Well, it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, ice cream sales are relatively flat at a high level, but there's a constant challenge to ice cream from a growing dessert category. Oh, definitely. One of the things ice cream makers have chosen to do is market ice creams these days with added benefits. There are ice creams uh, aimed at parents with kids that hide vegetables in the ice cream. There is an ice cream marketed to help you sleep, or to put it technically, to keep from interrupting your ability to go to sleep. There, there is ice cream being marketed. Wait, 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 wait. There's an ice cream to keep from interrupting your sleep? It, I think it's called Nightshade. Their selling point is, if ice cream before sleep keeps you up, try ours. It's specifically formulated not to stop you from falling asleep. Now, that sounds like a rather niche group to me, but when you're marketing, you you market what, what you think will sell. And there's an awful lot of that specifically targeted added benefits ice cream on the market these days. Oh, there definitely is. There definitely is. And for all the parents of fur babies out there, there is doggy ice cream and there are several brands on the market. So don't think that you can't you know, have a midnight snack with your fur baby, fur baby, you definitely can. You know, there's, there's one thing in the ice cream world I'm not real thrilled with, which is 
there's a bit of a misdirection going on in homemade ice cream in that there are a handful of places that exert real control over the ingredients. But most places telling you that they're making homemade ice cream are buying a bag of pre-mixed base and the homemade part is simply running it through their machine. And I'm, I'm not in love with that. Now, if, if on the other end, they're providing you remarkable mix-ins that perhaps they made themselves, that's something else. But the average homemade ice cream place isn't doing anything um, more impressive than when Ben and Jerry's are doing or Hagen does. Ooh, so guys, you are hearing it here first. It was not I that said it. So yeah. But I'm a huge Hagen does fan. Oh, I'm sorry, Ben and Jerry's fan. Oh, I am too. I am too. The fam clan and I love Ben and Jerry's. Well, I had the opportunity to speak to Jerry in researching the book, who's a great guy. Um, And, you know, you you hear their story from way back when of just trying to make a good, solid, decent product. And it's inspiring. It's the sort of thing you want to hear from people who are making food for a living. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. So David, before we wrap things up, can you tell everyone where they can find your amazing, amazing book, where they can find you, where, you know, any websites or anything that you have? Uh, Yeah, I'm on Facebook and on Instagram, but the book uh, is available through Amazon Barnes and Noble, Walmart.com, uh, Bookshop, any any place that sells books, go there, pick it up. I'm very proud of it. And I appreciate the opportunity that you've given me, Queen, to talk about it. Well, I am so glad to have you on. You don't understand when I when I saw, I was like, he's talking food. I love food. I like to eat. well we all do we all do we all do so guys definitely check his book out i'm telling you you will not be disappointed and believe it or not a lot of the things you will find out you have in your cabinet your refrigerator you know and it's just a matter of putting them together and doing it with love so Thank you again, David. This has been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. It's been a delight for me as well. So guys, I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. This was awesome. Definitely check out the book. Like I'm telling you, you will not be disappointed. There are some really great, great recipes and you get to find out the realness about some of your favorite, favorite foods and things that you may actually already have in your own cabinets. But guys, as always, be good to yourselves, be good to each other, and happy shopping. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It is your man's Mr. Dominic Cruz, featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, Yahoo, and Fox, and you are listening to CQP Moments with the Coupon Queen Pins.